I'm uh, station manager Dan Aykroyd. Uh, Jane, you ignorant slut. It's the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. 3-605.10.20.22.24.26.50.70.80. It specifies clean shirt, short hair, tie, pressed trousers, sports jacket or suit, and leather shoes, preferably with a high shine on them. It's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes, it's dark, and we're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Dan Aykroyd Podcast. I'm your host, Scott White, and it's October. And what are we going to deal with in October? I figured we'd go something a little scary being October. It was really tough. Couldn't really find any Dan Aykroyd scary movies, but I did come across Twilight Zone the movie. So that's what we're going to be talking about on this episode. Before we begin, I just want to get this out there, the elephant in the room. Uh, For those of you who do know or don't know, uh, one of the actors, Vic Morrow, was killed in a chopper accident on the set of this movie. And I'm not going to dwell on that. I'm not going to talk about that. If that's something you're interested in, you can look that up on your own. I am just going to concentrate on the movie itself. All that out of the way, let's begin. And the movie opens with CCR, Creedence Clearwater Revival, the Midnight Special. We cut to a car winding through these lonely roads, CCR playing. And then we cut inside the car, and it's Albert Brooks and Dan Aykroyd singing along to CCR. Dan Aykroyd and Albert Brooks have captured a car trip, in my opinion. Right off the bat, you see these two guys, they're just having fun. If you're in your car with your friend singing along to a song that you love, they captured it perfectly. They're singing along to the song, all of a sudden, the tape that they're singing to. A tape, that's right, 1983, so there's a tape deck in this car. And a tape deck, and the tape deck just eats the tape. And they don't have a radio, so they're going to have to talk to each other. And before we go on any further, we're going to go on our first... Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. That's right. Our first tangent alert. Dan Aykroyd and Albert Brooks were both part of the first season of Saturday Night Live. A lot of people don't remember, but Albert Brooks contributed short films to the first season of Saturday Night Live. And sometimes he is often considered as a cast member of the first season of Saturday Night Live. So Dan Aykroyd, Albert Brooks, they started together on SNL in 1975. We're out of the tangent alert and we're back to the movie. They start talking to each other. And Albert Brooks says, let's play the TV theme show game. And they start humming TV theme shows. They go back and forth, back and forth. Once again, the dynamic between Albert Brooks and Dan Aykroyd is very, very good. You can tell that they they like each other in real life. They're playing off each other really good. They go back and forth. And then all of a sudden, Dan Aykroyd brings up, did you ever watch The Twilight Zone? And they say, oh, yeah, this is a great show. Albert Brooks, it was a great show. Love the Twilight Zone. They bring up the episode of Burgess Meredith where he breaks his glasses and he can't read. And they bring up a couple of other episodes. Then Dan Aykroyd says, you want to see something really scary? Because earlier, Albert Brooks turned off the lights of the car. He said, do you want to see something really scary? Turns off the lights of the car. And Dan Aykroyd sort of freaks out. So now it's a callback. Dan Aykroyd's like, do you want to see something very scary? Sure. So they pull over, and Dan Aykroyd, you know, this crouches out of view, and he comes back, and all of a sudden, Dan Aykroyd is a creature. 
and he attacks Albert Brooks. You hear Albert Brooks scream. The camera pans up, and we see Twilight Zone the movie, and that is the only credit we get at the beginning of the movie. The only credit, the name of the movie, Twilight Zone the movie. We go right into the voiceover, not of a sight of sound, but of mind. And it's Burgess Meredith. They got Burgess Meredith to do the voiceover, which I can't, I loved it. I loved it because they just brought him up in that, in that scene before. They brought up his famous episode of The Twilight Zone. So they now they got Burgess Meredith narrating this movie. Beautiful. And as for the opening prologue with Dan Aykroyd and Albert Brooks, very, very nice. It's very, very casual. I saw this movie in the theaters, so I knew it was coming. But I think if the first time you saw this, it is so laid back and it's so casual that you just think that maybe they're just going to start talking about old Twilight Zones and then they might fade into those. Nope. Bam. Dan Aykroyd turns into a creature and I guess devours Albert Brooks in the middle of nowhere. Very, very cool opening to a movie. We get a voiceover, Burgess Meredith, talking about the Vic Morrow character. We cut to the outside of a bar, and we see Vic Morrow. He's walking into a bar, and Burgess Meredith says, this is a very, very angry man. He feels that other people are getting things that he deserves, and he is just tired of other people getting things that he deserves. And he walks into a bar, and he meets his two buddies. So Vic Morrow sits down and he starts talking to his buddies. Right off the bat, Vic Morrow is a racist bigot. He starts throwing out all the racial slurs, even the N-word. He throws out the N-word several times. I know this was 1983. We always say it was a different time. You never want to hear the N-word. But this character, this character would have used that word in that situation. And the use of that word, it's sort of like Blazing Saddles. I don't want to compare it. I mean, it's def this is definitely not a comedy. But Mel Brooks used the N-word in Blazing Saddles just to show the ignorance of the people using the word. In this movie, Vic Morrow is using that word not only to show his ignorance, but to show his anger at the world. He feels that all these people are taking things from him. He doesn't look at himself. He doesn't look at, his, at himself as the problem. He looks at others as the problem. Because all he, he states that all these other people, he is better than all these other people. And he's just better than them because he is white. So the use of the words, all the racial slurs, it's a, it's a bit uncomfortable, but it really defines his character in, in this portion of the movie. And Vic Morrow starts talking louder and louder and louder. And sitting behind them is a table of African-American gentlemen. And they start hearing all these slurs. And one of them gets up and leans into the table and asks if there's a problem. Let's do another one. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. The actor that leans in and talks to them and tells them to lighten up is Steve Williams. And Steve Williams plays one of the police officers who chased Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi in the Blues Brothers. So we have a connection between 
uh, Dan Hackeroid in the prologue and in the first scene. Vic Morrow just gets disgusted. Uh, Vic Morrow's character, he plays just the worst person ever. He plays that person where if you, he just hates anybody who's not like him. Everybody is less than him if he's not like him. And it really comes across. He really does a great job playing a bigot in this portion of the movie. And he just gets disgusted. Vic Morrow walks out of the door of the bar, closes it behind him, and now he is in WW2 Nazi Germany. And these Gestapo officers pull up and they start harassing him. And they're talking in German. I really appreciated this part of the movie, too. They didn't do the Hogan's Heroes where they're talking with German accents. No, they are talking with no subtitles. So they are talking in German to Vic Morrow. And Vic Morrow is obviously confused. He doesn't know what's going on. They take his wallet. They start to harass him. And he falls back on his white privilege. What he doesn't realize at this point is that the Germans see him as a Jew. The Germans see him as a Jew, so they, they are going, you know, they're rounding up the Jews at this point. He doesn't realize this at this time. So he runs away from the Germans. He gets shot in the arm, which means it's real. He has that bullet wound. If he was dreaming, maybe it, he wouldn't have gotten shot, but he gets shot. He gets shot in the arm. He, he, he starts bleeding. He, he, he knows he's in trouble. It, it, it makes him realize that he whatever's happening is real. It clicks in his mind. So he tries to escape the Germans. He runs into a building. He tries to get help from this family. This family turns on him because they're German and he's a Jew. So what is happening to Vic Morrow is... He, when we, he was, we, we heard him say all the, you know, that horrible scene, things about people, how they just had things handed to them because they're Jewish or because they're black. They, they just had these things handed to them. So now we're seeing how they were treated, how they lived, the, the portion of life that he doesn't see where he had his blinders on. This is out, this is becoming apparent to him. Not yet, but this is what, this is what it's building to. He tries to escape the Germans. And he crawls out on a ledge, and then all of a sudden the Germans start taking pot shots at him because he's trapped on this ledge. And he falls off the ledge, and when he hits the ground, boom, he's at a clan gathering. At the clan gathering, he is, they see him as a black man. Looking down at Vic Morrow is a young John Laroquette using the N-word. And the N-word is used once again very regularly in this scene. That's what they would say it's really hard to balance you 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 want to make a realistic movie but you don't want to make it so realistic that it turns people off some people are going to get turned off by this it's john landis the guy who directed this portion it's really really real they use real language, language that would have been used. It's, this is set in the South with a burning cross, and they're at a Klan meeting, and they think, and they're going to lynch Vic Morrow. His bullet wound from Germany carried over, so he's still bleeding. I like that continuity where he, when he leaves one nightmare to another, all the scars that he has uh, received from that one nightmare carry over. I think that's a metaphor for people. You know, they carry the nightmares of racism with them. 
They, you, you don't shirk them. They stay with you for your entire life. I think that was a nice metaphor, the, the shoulder wound. They're going to lynch him. He pushes one of the clan members into the flaming cross and runs away. And he dives into the water and they start shooting at him. He dives in. When he comes up, the scene is very apocalypse now where we just see Vic Morrow's eyes and nose come up above the water and he's looking around and he's in the jungle. He gets out of the water. He's in Vietnam at this point. And he hears the Vietnamese coming and he hides from the Vietnamese. In this scenario, people see him as Vietnamese. What he is doing now, he's hiding from people who would have accepted him. He's hiding from the Vietnamese because in this world at this time, he is Vietnamese and he's hiding from them. But then all of a sudden we hear Jimi Hendrix. Jimi Hendrix starts playing and we hear these American soldiers coming. He steps out holding the wound and he's like, I'm American, I'm American, I'm American. And they shoot at him because they see him as Vietnamese. It's really ironic. He was hiding from the people that would help him and expose himself to the people that wanted to kill him because he he doesn't realize how people see him. That, you know, he just sees things as black and white. I'm an American and an American's going to help me. This is really a, really a nice piece on anti-racism. How it just affects everybody. Well, what happens is one of the soldiers takes a grenade, throws it at Vic Morrow. It explodes. Vic Morrow goes up in the air and he lands. He's bam. He's back in Germany where the whole nightmare started. And they essentially they grab him. They label him as a Jew and they throw him in a train off to a concentration camp. And while the train is pulling away, he can see outside the slats of the train. He sees the bar where he first came out of, and his buddies are leaving the bar. He can see his buddies, but his buddies can't see him. And he is just yelling at them for help, help me, help me, as the train just glides away. There's nothing more hopeless than seeing, than being inches away from freedom and not being able to get there. And he's just taken away as a, as a Jew heading to a concentration camp. And that was our, that was the, uh, this is, there's four segments, and that was the end of the first one. We pan up to the sky, we hear Burgess Meredith voiceover, and we come back, we cut to the Sunnyvale rest home. And the scene opens, it's a bunch of old people, they're getting a lecture on vitamins and diet and sex. Yeah, they say you can have sex up into the, up into your 80s if you want to. <laughs> Which is, you know what? I'm going to go off on one of these. This is an unplanned one, but we're going off. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Recent study has shown that VD is running wild in nursing homes. It's going through the roof. So these old people who you think are just done with life, are just screwing their brains out without protection. While they're having the speech, we see this guy, we see this old man, this resident there. He's holding these two suitcases. He's talking to his son and his daughter-in-law, and he wants to come visit. And the son says, no, we can't have you come visit. It's a very, it's a very touching scene. 
it's made aware to us that this guy, every second Saturday when his family comes visit, he packs those bags wanting to go home with a week with the family. And the family can't be bothered with him at this point in their lives. And they just leave him there. They come visit him, but they never take him home. I have an elderly father myself, and I just adore him. It's just hard to watch. Well, we cut to all the... And I just want to say this... This little uh, vignette of the movie is delightful. There, Scatman Crothers, I love Scatman. He plays what they like to call the, the magical black man. There's just a string of movies where you have this magical black man just come into people's lives and just uplift it. Uh, the Legend of Beggar Vance, uh, Bruce Almighty. And Scatman Crothers is just wonderful in this role. And this is just... This is... All the actors in this vignette are well into their 70s and 80s. They're all fantastic character actors and actresses. They all do a great job. We're going to go off on one of these again. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. One of the actresses in this vignette is Selma Diamond, who played a role on Night Court, which starred John LaRoquette, who was in the episode, who was in the vignette right before hers. So, Night Court connection in Twilight Zone, the movie. Boom. Scatman Crothers just starts telling them, why you're acting so old? Think young. Go out. Go out and play. That's what he wants to do. He tells them, go out and play. Everybody in the in the home seems to like this idea, except for the old man whose son rejected him. He's just a cranky old curmudgeon. And you we can't do that. We can't go out and have fun. We have to stay here. We have to do that. He's just old and bitter because I, his family has rejected him and left him here. Scatman Carruthers convinces all of these people, except for the curmudgeon, let's go out tonight and play kick the can. And they go out... And they play kick the can, and while playing the kick the can, they become young. They become, yeah, they become children. I just want to say that the children in this movie did a wonderful job of just capturing the essence of the older versions of themselves. They did a great job. And they're running around, and they're playing kick the can, and they all gather around Scatman Carruthers, who didn't turn young. He stayed old. And they asked, why, why didn't you come with us? And he said, I just wanted to act my age, but have a fresh, young mind. And all the other people in the rest home, well, almost, we'll get to that. They get it. It's like, we can still be who we are, but have fresh, young minds. Keep our imaginations going. Keep ourselves going. If you, Scatman Carruthers says, if I don't move, I'll rust. That's it. So they all agree. Well, we don't want to be young, but we want to be. We want to be back at our old age, but have fresh young minds. And they go back to their room, and the old curmudgeon's in there, and he sees them all as young kids, and he runs to the nurse, and he brings them back, and all of them have turned old, except for one. One, he decides to stay young. And the old curmudgeon looks at him and says, take me with you. And he's like, I can't take you with me. And that old curmudgeon's 
you can see in his eyes, I missed my chance because I was just old and cranky and just didn't want to get out and take any chances. I missed my chance to be young. Even if it was for a moment, I missed that chance. And the, the old person who decides to be young, he runs away. But we cut to the next day and all of the other people in the rest home, they've adopted. They're going to keep their bodies, but they have their fresh young minds. And Scatman Carruthers, you know, leaves the rest home and he goes to another because his work here is done. And he does one of the few things. He looks right into the camera and he goes, they'll get it. This is a very, very sweet segment in the movie. It's, it's, you don't expect something like this in what, in the Twilight, you know, a, a, a quote unquote horror sci-fi uh, genre movie. You know, it's fantasy, but man... This scene, this vignette is really, really touching. Just seeing all these great old actors and actresses doing a great job. This scene affects, I, I, it will affect different people in different ways. I saw, I saw this movie years and years ago, and I remember this scene. However, now I'm watching it, and my father, he's turning 94 this month. 94. And my father... He, he's kept his body, but my father has a fresh, young mind. And I just love the fact that he has a fresh, young mind. And seeing this, this gives me a new appreciation of that. This is just a very, very touching, just be who you are and live life to the fullest. And I really don't have anything more to say about this. All the actors, Scatman Crothers uh, especially, do a fantastic job. It's, oh, it, it's, it, it's, it was just a pleasure. It was a pleasure to watch. I enjoyed that. And this was directed by Steven Spielberg. What? What's that you say? What's that you hear? Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Steven Spielberg directed Dan Aykroyd in 1941, which was the first episode of this podcast that I ever did. So if you want to know what that was like, go back and see how bad I was at the beginning and how much I've improved since then. And now let's take a break with a word from one of our sponsors. Hey there, soldier. I see you're back from defending our country. Yes, I've been overseas. But I brought something back with me from overseas, and I just hope my wife doesn't find out. Oh, I see. You brought back a little fire in your pants. I have to go home to my wife, and I don't know how long I can put her off. Well, don't worry, super soldier. You can protect your reputation with Dr. Carmichael's Easy Glide Egyptian Calamine Lotion. Dr. Carmichael's Easy Glide Egyptian Calamine Lotion? Yes, Dr. Carmichael's Easy Glide Egyptian Calamine Lotion will relieve all the burning, itching, and flaking in your pants. How does it work? Just apply Dr. Carmichael's Easy Glide Egyptian Calamine Lotion to the infected area, and within five minutes, you're cured. <laughs> wow, you mean it only takes five minutes for Dr. Carmichael's Easy Glide Egyptian Calamine Lotion to work? Yes, you can safely go back to your wife and have sex for procreation, just like the Bible says. Dr. Carmichael's Easy Glide Egyptian Calamine Lotion comes shipped to your house in a plain brown box and is labeled Dr. Carmichael's Evergreen Shave Balm. That way you can keep it in your medicine cabinet just in case you have another lapse in judgment. <laughs> wow, that's great. Now, after being overseas for a year, you can safely go home to your wife and your five-week-old baby. Dr. Carmichael's Easy Glide Egyptian Calamine Lotion keeps your war stories secret. Dr. Carmichael, whose number one priority is family. 
And now back to the Dan Aykroyd podcast. We go to the next one. Once again, Burgess Meredith with a voiceover. We cut to this woman driving. She's lost. She pulls over into a diner. She's looking for directions. There's this kid in the diner. He's playing video games. She gets out of the diner. She She hits the kid. She hits the kid with her car. And I swear, when I was watching this movie, that looked so real. It looked like the kid got smacked with that car. So whoever did the stunt of that in this scene, hats off. It looked it looked way too real. The kid's hurt. Not the kid's not hurt, but the bike is damaged. And he tells he asks this woman, "Can you take me home?" And she takes him home. And he gets to his home. And we walk in. And there's just something off. There's his uncle and his sister watching cartoon. All the cartoons being watched are, of course, Warner Brother cartoons. And throughout this whole scene, there's this cartoon music and sound effects playing through this whole thing. We meet his family, and the whole family is off. And he invites her to stay to dinner, and she reluctantly accepts. And they take her bag, and she goes upstairs to wash her hands, and they start rummaging through her bag, her, his whole family. His mom, his dad, his, his sister, his uncle, they start rummaging. We don't know what, all we know is that something is weird. The house is like a leave it to beaver house from the 50s. It's perfect. Then we cut to this room and there's this girl. We see the back of her head and she's watching television. Uh, you know, the woman who's, uh, who, who drove her there, who's now in the house, she, she says, hello? And the girl doesn't answer. And we get a close up that her mouth has been sealed shut. She, ha- she has no mouth. We cut back downstairs where once again, now you get the feeling that the family, it slowly comes out that the family is scared of this little boy. This little boy has something on them. And it's really, really weird. They start eating dinner. The dinner is this ice cream and peanut butter. And the woman who takes him there, obviously, she's getting freaked out by all this. And she decides to leave. And she gets up to leave. And she's like, no. And he's like, no, no, you can't leave. We got we to gotta show you a magic trick. Have my uncle do a magic trick. And he does this magic trick. And this horrendous cartoon bunny comes out of the hat. And it just, it just scares the hell out of everybody. And this woman just tries to get out. It comes apparent that this little boy has the ability to wish. He wishes anything that he wants. And that's why these people, these people are not his real family. These are people that he has lured into this house and now is keeping captured because he can do anything he wants. Removed his sister's mouth. He, I believe he turned his parents into goldfish. His sister tries to speak up against him. And in this movie, he sends his sister into cartoon land and where she gets eaten by a monster in cartoon land. I remember seeing this movie. I do not remember this this vignette at all. I remembered the other three crystal clear. I did not remember this one at all. And while watching it, I could remember why I didn't remember this one. This is, it, it, it's dull. It's uninspired. It's not scary. We're supposed to be scared at the lunacy that this little boy can make cartoons come alive. But it doesn't come off that way. It just comes off as silly. We see this little boy with a lot of dramatic close-up and dramatic looks where it's supposed to be scary and creepy. It just looks ridiculous. I laughed at this portion of the movie at places where I know it wasn't supposed to be laughed at. All in all, 
this is the weakest vignette out of the four in the movie. It's not, it's, uh, I'm already starting to forget it now. It's very, very unmemorable. I do remember that there's a, once again, they hired fantastic actors. Uh, if you look at this, there's a lot of fantastic character actors and actresses where you're going to look at that person like, I've seen that person before, I've seen that person before, and they're in there, and they're doing their best, but this is just uninspired, Not it's not scary, it's not thought-provoking, it's not anything. At the end of the vignette, the teacher says, stay with me, I'll teach you how to use your power, we can use it for good, not evil. I, the moral of the story, I'm guessing, is be careful what you wish for. Who cares? I, I took nothing away from that. From the first one, I, I took away. It was, a, it, was, it was a very powerful stance on, on racism. On the second one, I just took away a warm, good feeling about it, about just growing old gracefully. This one, I took nothing. I, I took nothing away from this one. The week, it was directed by Joe Dante, uh, and I don't really have anything more to say about this. Not really impressed with this one at all. Weakest one of the weakest one of the four. Now we go to the last one, and this is one based on the famous Twilight Zone episode starring William Shatner, where there's uh, a gremlin on the wing of a plane, and the star of this vignette is John Lithgow, and I cannot. John Lithgow does a fantastic job in this one. Oh man. He just portrays his claustrophobia. He's, he's, he's terrified of flying. That's the deal. He's on this plane. He's terrified of flying. And you can, he just portrays it. But just by looking at him, you get queasy about flying. He does such a great job. He's on this plane. He doesn't want to fly. He has to fly. He's freaking out. They put him in his seat. They strap him in. He looks out the window. And then you see the gremlin. You see the gremlin on the wing of the plane. And at first he thinks his eyes is playing tricks on him. But then lightning strikes, and it just illuminates, and he sees the gremlin, and he freaks out. And and I'm going to say this again, John Lithgow, John Lithgow makes this portion of the movie. His acting in this portion of the movie is fantastic. But before you go on, I've got one, I hope this, this might be the last one, I don't know, we could throw some more in, but we got a... Tangent alert... Tangent alert. Tangent alert. Tangent alert. One of the stewardesses on this plane is Donna Dixon. And who is Donna Dixon? Donna Dixon is Dan Aykroyd's wife. And she also starred in Dr. Detroit, another previous Dan Aykroyd podcast. Please check that one out. Nobody else sees the gremlin on the wing of a plane. He's the only one. He's trying to warn people that there's something on the wing of the plane. There's something on the wing of the plane. Nobody believes him. Now, the gremlin itself looks good from a ways away. When it's a ways away on the end of the wing, it looks fine. But it gets closer and closer to the... And once it gets closer and closer to the window, it, it doesn't look all that great... Maybe they should have kept it away longer. That way, like I said, it, it looked better from afar than a, a near. John Lithgow just finally realized he's on this plane, and it's very simple. This is a very simple plot from a very famous uh, episode. 
He's got to get that thing off the wing of the plane or this wing of the plane is going to crash. Because we see set up throughout the throughout this vignette, there's been more and more plane crashes and nobody understands why. They can't figure out why. Well, this is why. There's been a gremlin up there monkeying with the wing of the plane. John Lithgow sees it and he tries to break the window. There's an air marshal on the plane and he's he has a gun on him. And John Lithgow takes the guy's gun, blows out the window, and he gets partially sucked out the window. Once out the window, he starts shooting at the gremlin. I know this is sci-fi, and I know this is fantasy. I don't know if you are partially sucked out of a window, if you would have the strength to actually hold and aim and shoot a gun in those conditions. Throw out the throw out physics in the. I guess if you you can accept there's a gremlin on the wing of a plane, you can accept the fact that this guy can shoot a gremlin on the end on the wing of a plane. He shoots, he shoots, he shoots. The gremlin comes towards him, bites off the barrel of the gun, and looks him right in the eye, and he grabs his face. Now this is actually a cool scene, even though the gremlin doesn't look its best. He he grabs John Lithgow's face like he's gonna crush it. But then the plane comes out of the clouds and he sees the lights down at the bottom. And he looks at John Lithgow and he just gives him a disapproving finger like, uh, 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 maybe next time. And the gremlin flies off. And that looks kind of ridiculous too. I I think it would have been better if the gremlin just disappeared. But the gremlin flies off. This is also, this movie is a victim of um, the technology they had at the time. They, They did the best they could with what they had. I wouldn't worry too much about how the gremlin looks. As I said, John Lithgow's acting in this scene is, it just keeps you on the edge of your seat. It just, it makes you claustrophobic along with him. I can't tell you how much John Lithgow uh, did a great job in the scene. And they land the plane and they're hauling John Lithgow away in a straitjacket. He's strapped to a gurney. He's in a straitjacket. They haul him away. People are talking about, oh, I can't believe he did that. Was he trying to get out? Blada, blada, blada. You know, they're trying to figure out what his motivations were. What was he trying to do? Then we see the wing of the plane. And the wing of the plane is just destroyed. There's wires coming out. It's crackling. It's just been crushed, mangled. Everybody looks at the plane. And one of the mechanics, who's smoking a cigar... Which is, okay, yeah, that's right. What you want to do is smoke a cigar around a plane that just crash-landed. Yeah, there's not going to be any, you know, any gasoline or any leakage of anything flammable. Just smoke that cigar. Great job. Anyway, he just asks, what the hell happened up there? And everybody is dumbfounded and everybody looks at each other like, well, maybe there was something on the wing of the plane. (laughs) Then we cut to the ambulance and John Lithgow is in the ambulance And all of a sudden, we hear the siren go off, and we hear Dan Aykroyd's voice. He's back. Dan Aykroyd is back for the ending of the film. He's the driver of the ambulance. He just looks at John Lithgow, and he goes, enough of that noise. Let's listen to this. And he puts on CCR. And John Lithgow's like, oh, I love CCR. Dan Aykroyd says, wow, looks like you had a a pretty big scare up there in the air. John Lithgow's like, yeah, yeah, we did. And then Dan Aykroyd says, hey, you want to see something really scary? And then the do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. And we go into Rod Serling. They get Rod Serling to do the end voiceover, which I think was perfect. 
I was I couldn't remember whether they had his voice or not. It's been a while since I watched this movie, but they did. They had Rod Serling doing the closing monologue to the show. And that's where it ends. Uh, that last segment was directed by George Miller. And that is Twilight Zone, the movie. What did I think about it? Um, three, I, I, three out of the four vignettes were very, very... I enjoyed the three out of the four. They all gave me different emotions. The first one made me feel angry at this guy, you know, at this racist. And you don't really feel sorry for him at the end. The second one made me feel good. It was an uplifting story. The third one, as I said, didn't give me anything. The fourth one was just a straight-up horror vignette, edge-of-your-seat stuff. I like this. And Dan Aykroyd in the prologue, he doesn't have much to do in the end. I thought it was a nice button to see Dan Aykroyd at the end, you know, playing Credence again, giving us that line, you really want to see, you want to see something really scary. But the prologue with him and Albert Brooks, that was great too. It looked like two buddies... On a road trip, you really didn't expect what happened. They played off of each other very, very well. All in all, I would say if you watch Twilight Zone the movie, skip the third vignette. Watch the first one, the second one, and the fourth one. The third one you can do without. It doesn't do anything for me, and I'm pretty sure it won't do anything for you. And that's it. That is the end of this Dan Aykroyd podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please support me either here on Anchor or on my Patreon page or on my Patreon page, patreon.com backslash Scott White. Check out my website, scottyblanco.com. I have a lot of stuff going on on my Facebook page too, Scott White Comedian. Check that out. And leave me a review on iTunes. Uh, That'll help people find this podcast. I'm on Twitter at scottwhite91, Instagram at scottwhite1968. Any of those platforms, if you want something to say, if there's something you want to hear, something I'm doing right, something I'm doing wrong, please let me know. I want to hear from you guys. I'm doing this for you. I enjoy doing it, but I hope you guys are enjoying listening to it. And that's it. We'll see you next time on the Dan Aykroyd Podcast.